Bibles to Galatians 5. And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word now, we pray for open hearts and open minds to receive your truth. Lord, I pray for your anointing. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come through, Father. Help me articulate your truth, not my truth, but the truth of your word. Father, we know that your word does not return to you void. So we look forward to the work that it will accomplish in each life and each person who hears as you have deemed. And all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me start this morning by asking some questions. Are you bothered by sin? Not other people's sin, but your sin, your own sin. Do you mourn over sin? Not other people's sin, but your own sin. Do you find yourself regretting your thoughts or your actions? Whether immediately after you've done them or sometime afterwards. Do you experience those times where you feel disconnected to the people of God or maybe even disconnected to God himself? And you know the symptoms. You don't feel like going to church. You don't feel like going to your community group. You just can't seem to get into the word. And it's kind of like a spiritual malaise. Maybe you find yourself getting impatient or short-tempered. Perhaps you've fallen into some old habits. Eating too much, drinking too much, gossiping, letting your eyes go where they should not go, or perhaps you're spending a little too much time on that favorite hobby of yours, a little too much money on possessions, a little too much attention to things that occupy your mind or divert your attention from what you should be thinking about. Perhaps you've neglected relationships, whether with family or or friends. You hold grudges or you refuse to forgive. You say things you shouldn't say or you've said things you shouldn't have said. You don't, or you betray those you profess to love. You don't call your mom. I say that because my mom is here visiting today. (laughs) Well, there's many other things that we could be guilty of. If this doesn't describe you, feel free to quietly leave right now because this means you're perfect. You're keeping God's law without one mistake, one intentional or unintentional act of disobedience. You've never put something or someone before God. You've never uttered a swear word or used the Lord's name wrongly. You always honor the Lord with a day of rest. You always honor your parents. You never have feelings of contempt or hate for another or never borne ill will to someone else. You've never lusted in your heart. You've never taken or kept something that doesn't belong to you. You've never told a lie, even a little white one. And you don't get jealous or desire something that someone else has to the point of having it become foremost in your thoughts and wishes. Anybody here like that? Now, welcome to the club. The Christian life is not one that is free of struggles. Paul said so much in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So where am I going with all of this? Well, a few weeks ago, I was reading a book specifically about the topic of repentance. And I read something that struck me about struggling with sin. And knowing that John was going to be gone this week, it's been on my mind to share this with you this morning. And it all started with a reference, just a reference to Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And it got me to thinking about what it means to crucify the flesh and where this fits in with our struggle with sin and living the Christian life. So I titled this morning's sermon, Killing Sin. Let me give you some quick background on Galatians. It was written by the Apostle Paul in about 49 AD. It's considered one of Paul's first epistles, if not the first epistle. And it came on the heels of the Council of Jerusalem, 
which met to discuss the requirement of circumcision for Gentile Christians. The account of this council you can find in Acts 15. The council confirmed that salvation was by grace, so there was no requirement for circumcision. Now, the Galatian church was in crisis. Despite the council of Jerusalem, the Galatians were beset by false teachers, and they were referred to as the Judaizers. These false teachers told the Galatians that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. They were indeed savage wolves drawing people away from the truth in order to follow them. And this was causing a disturbance in the church. So the book of Galatians addresses the topic of faith versus works for salvation, or works and grace. In chapter 5 in Galatians deals specifically with freedom and living in, or living in the spirit, living the Christian life. And it, here it gives us that principle of mortifying sin, of killing sin. Now, one caveat before we begin in looking at this chapter, I'm going to take what Pastor Steve routinely refers to as that 50,000-foot view. It would take weeks just to go through Galatians 5. It is so rich. But Pastor John's already engaged in taking us through 1 John, so I don't want to start something I won't get to finish. Nonetheless, we can learn from a broader examination of this chapter, and I think what we'll find is still instructive and, and helpful. So let's, let's dive in. The first, the first um, point that I have is called lumbering after the law. Lumbering after the law. See, we, we all want to be righteous, don't we? I mean, we, we want to be righteous. In my, in my career in law enforcement, I dealt with people who actually wanted to be evil. That was their goal, was to be evil. But I trust that no one here is bent in such a fashion or such a direction that they desire to be evil. There's really only two ways to be or to become righteous. The first way is to obey God's law and obey all of it, without fail. And if we're to conquer sin, we must do so on the basis of our own strength, our own ability to obey. Righteousness is obtained by following all of the rules, not just one or two, but all of them. The second way is to recognize that we cannot obey God's law on our own, that we must look to a righteousness, not our own. Conquering sin is not something we do on our own power. See, there are only two ways to live the Christian life. We can go backward and live by the rules, or we can press forward, living by the Spirit. The Galatian church had been taught the gospel, but now they're doubting that the gospel was all that was needed. So we pick up Paul's exhortation to the Galatians to not go backward. Galatians 5.1 could be considered a key verse to the whole book. So follow along as I, I read. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When you try to follow the law, you're submitting yourself to a, a form of slavery. You're subjecting yourself to this. You must always look over your shoulder and make sure you're acting perfectly. You're a slave to every rule, every regulation. Now think about this. A slave is not concerned with loving his master. And the master is not concerned with whether or not the slave loves him. The focus is on the absolute obedience of the slave. For the slave, disobedience means one thing, punishment. And the focus is not on the heart, but on the actions. The slave must not get careless and thereby fail to fulfill his obligations. He must be ever vigilant to make sure that he is perfect or face the consequences. And I ask you, where is the peace in that? How do you have peace if you're constantly worried about performing, about doing the right thing all the time? Such it is with slavery to the law. We are bound to a system of do's and don'ts. Under the law, you must be careful to fulfill all of its provisions. James tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You don't get to plead partial innocence. 
One preacher gave a, an example of a person who was given a ticket for speeding, pleading that he should be let go because, well, he didn't commit robbery and he didn't commit burglary doesn't mean that the violator does not have to answer for the speeding offense. He's broken the law regardless of how many other laws he kept, and he has to pay the penalty for violating that speeding law. And it's not that the law is bad. The law is good. Psalm 19.8 tells us that. The law points out our own unrighteousness. You see, it's we who are bad, not the law. We are bad. See, for even knowing the law, we do what we want to do. We don't do what God says. We do what we want. Now, the law holds for us both a, a blessing and a curse, a blessing for those who keep the law and a curse for those who do not. But here's the rub. See, we're incapable of keeping the law. Our sinful flesh is weak. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And so we're all under the curse. When we sin, we are condemned. And then we sin more, and then we're condemned. You're familiar with the, the phrase on the back of the shampoo bottles, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. Well, here it's sin, be condemned, repeat. Sin, be condemned, repeat. We're slaves to sin if we try to live under the law because sin is not defeated. But the good news the good news is that Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has freed us from the curse of the law and slavery. That's the good news. We are set free. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in, from sin in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Then Paul explains further in Galatians 5, 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here Paul is directly addressing the call for the Judaizers over to the Galatian Christians to be circumcised. Paul is saying that if you accept the need for circumcision, then you have negated the grace that comes from Christ. Faith in Christ is of no advantage to you because you would then be relying on your own acts. You would still be accountable to the law. You're saying that you need to supplement Christ's work on the cross with your own obedience. But on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. There's no more to be done. The penalty for sin has been paid in full. But if we insist on adding something to his finished work, then we are rejecting his grace. This is what Paul means when he says that you have fallen from grace. He's not declaring that they've lost their salvation. We, we know that you can't lose your salvation, and the Bible never teaches that you can lose your salvation. But rather, if a person feels so strongly that he needs to add to Christ's work, in this case, to the point of being circumcised, that he never really completely accepted grace. And he was never really saved to begin with. Further, if he teaches such false doctrine, he is to be rebuked. You recall that Paul rebuked Peter for his hypocrisy when it came to eating with the Gentiles. Others were put out of the church for false doctrine. You've heard the saying, Jesus plus anything equals Nothing. Those who insist on justification by acts of the law adding to Jesus' work are cut off from Christ. They gain nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. 
Circumcision or lack of circumcision, it means nothing. Those who endure in faith in Christ alone have the hope of righteousness. Now, Paul then directly challenges these teachers. Look with me at Galatians 5, 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Galatians were doing just fine. Someone got to them. And now Paul is challenging this. And he's not necessarily asking for the identity of this false teacher. He just says, whoever he is, he's really not concentrated on who the person is. He's concentrated on the results. As much as he is challenging, he's challenging them for abandoning what they knew. It's like asking someone who was doing so well, what suddenly happened? What, what, what changed you? What, what made you go this direction? It's a call to examine what influence they've come under. He said, who told you this? He says, it, it certainly didn't come from God. He said, this persuasion is not from him who called you. So this disposition, this, this thought that they had to be circumcised, they had to hold on to a piece of the law to be saved, did not come from God. It was coming from man. In several of his letters, Paul uses sports analogies. In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us to run the race so that we may win the prize. In 2 Timothy 4, he speaks of himself as having finished the race. And here he's using a sports analogy again by telling the Galatians that they were running so well. You were running well. But who hindered you? It means who cut in front of you? Who blocked you while you were running? Who, who stopped your progress? Who interrupted your race? And by noting that just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, so just a little bit of false teaching can affect, and affect an entire church. False doctrine and heresy always starts out small. Always. It sounds good at first. It might even seem to make sense when we hear little bits of false doctrine, little bits of, of heresy. But if left unchecked, this small bit of false teaching spreads throughout the entire church. And soon enough, the entire doctrine of the church is affected. And the church has lost its commitment and its ability to preach the gospel. And it lost its commitment to the truth. It always happens slowly. Sadly, we see this all too often in churches around us that abandon gospel truth or they let culture kind of ease things into what God says. And step by step, they go from being a church that preaches the whole counsel of God to being a church that preaches only part of the counsel of God. They go from being a, a church that preaches gospel truth to an amalgam of all kinds of different things. The way to prevent this is to preach and teach the full counsel of God. The way to prevent this is for the members to be grounded in Scripture. This is one of the reasons we're going through Psalm 119, as Lloyd so aptly pointed out. By doing this, they aren't going to be hindered by a false teacher. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that the elders are held responsible for God for ensuring that false doctrine does not spread in the church. This is an important consideration and one that we as your pastors, we take, don't, we take seriously. We don't take this lightly. We will one day give an account to the Lord for how we shepherded Grace Bible Church. We will stand up before him as your pastors and give an account. When we ask about what our Sunday school teachers are teaching or what our community group leaders are, are teaching, it's so that we can fulfill this obligation. 
so that we know that no false teaching has crept into the church through one open window or one cracked door. And as we comply with God's command in shepherding the church, the church complies by submitting as we endeavor to ensure the sound teaching, as we ask about things. And all of this enables us to do our, our, our calling as pastors joyfully. This is what Hebrews 13 17 says, it says, submit to your leaders as those who must give an account. And we want to do it joyfully without groaning. And so when we work together, when we ask and we look at what's being taught in the church, we're working to keep out the false doctrine, we're working to keep out the wrong teaching. And the church helps us do this. Well, next Paul encourages the Galatians. He says, look, I, I know you. I know you will not take the wrong view. You will not give in to the false teaching. I know you. He says he also knows that the one who is leading them away will answer for his false teaching. 2 Peter 2.3 tells us that their condemnation awaits them. There's coming a day. From verse 11, we conclude that there might have been some misrepresentation of Paul's teaching. That perhaps he is on the side of the Judaizers after all, that he just hasn't gotten around to saying, and by the way, Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. But Paul answers that. He says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross is removed. Why, why is the cross so offensive if we still have to follow the law? Why is it only through Jesus and not the law that we're saved? And if I'm preaching following the law, why are, why are you beating up on me? I'm right alongside with you. But Paul is refuting any claims that he is preaching works plus grace. From 1 Corinthians 1.23, we know that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. But this would not be so if the law was followed. And why would he be a target then? Clearly, Paul is refuting any claims, any claims at all. Then in verse 12, he gets, well, he gets mad. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's pretty strong stuff. And perhaps the harshest thing Paul has ever said. But here he's referring to pagan cults where devotees would literally castrate themselves for their gods. Paganism, which is a religion of works, has no place alongside the gospel of grace. So Paul, in essence, is telling these false teachers, well, then fully commit. Don't engage in any half measures. Finish the job. Go for it. To be sure, Paul is not calling them to be punished. But he's so zealous for the gospel of grace that he doesn't want there to be any confusion whatsoever. If you're going to do this, then go... Go full boat on it. Any human effort that takes away from what Christ did for us on the cross negates the work of Jesus. Wash, rinse, repeat. Sin, be condemned, repeat. If you follow the law, if you base your righteousness on the law, just remember, sin, be condemned, repeat. See, we're lumbering after the law. I'm going to use sports analogies right alongside Paul. To lumber means to move ponderously. Ponderous means a great weight or unwieldy or clumsy because of weight or size. It can also mean oppressively or unpleasantly dull. When you're lumbering under a load, you don't have joy. It's just one Slow step after another, and you're carrying this weight that you want to put down. Brothers and sisters, this is not freedom. It's not how we are meant to live our lives. Putting our faith in the law and human effort is not the way to conquer sin. The law does not kill sin. You will not obtain righteousness by your own merits, no matter how hard you try to obey. And if you're struggling with sin today, addressing it, resisting it, trying to overcome it on your own power, 
is absolutely futile. See, the key is not just to do better or try harder. The answer is not to take on more moral rules. This is why we do not preach do be and don't be sermons. Do be like David. Don't be like Saul. A man one time told me to just preach what he needed to do and what he needed not to do. As if giving him a checkoff list would help him become righteous. The more rules he followed, the more righteous he would become. It's nothing more than legalistic thinking. Where you have to be good enough to inherit salvation. Then Paul makes an observation in contrast to that. And part, or point two I have is staying in the lanes. Staying in the lanes. Runners are in lanes. In verses 13 through 15, Paul reminds us to, again of our liberty. Listen as I, I read this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We're liberated from the curse of the law. But while we have freedom, we are not to indulge in our sinful desires. Just because we are not justified by the law does not mean we are free to ignore the law. Liberty must not be confused with license. All too often that happens. I'm free, I can do what I want. No, liberty does not mean license. In Galatians 3, Paul talks about the law. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was set before us to point us to true righteousness. And as long as we were under the law, we were bound to abide by the law. Now, think about it like this. When growing up, we were under the care of our parents. They put rules in place to protect us. They put curfews on there. They told us where we could and could not go, friends that we could not could not hang with, things that we, we were to do and not to do. And they put these rules in place to keep us from harming others. And they put them in place to keep us from harming ourselves. And while we lived under these rules, we were to follow them or face the consequences and these consequences almost always involve punishment of some sort. And then we grew up and we left our parents' house. We were no longer compelled to follow the law or follow their rules because of the consequences that disobedience brought. And didn't it feel good? What 18-year-old hasn't said, I'm an adult, I'm free, I can do whatever I want now? Well, not so fast there, son. Or in my case, not so fast there, daughter. It's true that the newly minted adult is free from his parents' oversight. But it doesn't mean he's at liberty to do whatever he wants to do. See, God's standards never changed. Now these maturity hopefully obeys the law, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Because it's the right thing to do. Because he's learned well. And so it is with our liberty in Christ. Paul tells us not to use our freedom as an opportunity to serve our sinful desires. Rather, we're to serve one another in, law, in love. And this fulfills the law. So what then of our struggle with sin? We know that the law is not able to free us. We also know that we're not free to sin. And if we don't want to run after, we don't want to lumber after the law, and we don't want to run outside the lanes, what are we to do? Well, Paul turns to the key to living the Christian life. And this is my third point, stride with the Spirit. Lumbering after the law, running outside, or running in the lanes, and now stride with the Spirit. 
Look at Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. When we focus on the law, we're bound to sin. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the law is bad or that the law causes sin. But rather, because of our rebellious nature, we're naturally inclined to violate the law. So it's like the child who's being told he can't have something or he can't do something. As soon as you tell him that, suddenly he wants it, and he wants it badly. And that's our sin nature. It doesn't mean if there's no law, there, wouldn't be, there would be no sin. We know that sin existed before the law. And it means that sin is less active when the law is not emphasized, but there's still sin. But we're so rebellious in our hearts, we want it our way that when we're told you can't have it, that's what we want. We want to show that we're in control, we're in charge. Desires of our hearts are turned toward that which is evil. We don't inherently want to obey God. We want to be in charge. We want to do what we want to do. And in this state, we gratify our own desires. Things of the Spirit are that which are holy, but the things of the flesh are that which are evil, and they are opposed to each other. When you are engaging in one you are not engaging in the other. And if we're predisposed to sin, to gratifying the flesh, and we are, it is the Spirit who keeps us from doing those things that we want to do, that natural sin inclination. And here Paul tells us that if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, it doesn't negate the provisions of the law, but something greater than the law, greater than the rules, becomes our moral guide. The law doesn't lead us to righteousness. It can excite us to sin. But the Spirit compels us to obedience. And furthermore, the law brings with it a curse of divine judgment. But the Spirit enables us to avoid divine judgment. Our acceptance before God cannot come from the law. But through the Spirit... Our imperfect obedience is accepted as perfect. Listen to the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, I warned you as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list can be broken down into four groups. The first group deals with sexual sins, immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, pornography. Then impurity, lusts and fantasies and thoughts and words and deeds that are sinful. Then sensuality. This is suggestive behavior. Immodest dress, shamelessness. I think flirting falls under this. The next group deals with sins regarding religious conduct. Idolatry. This can be the false worship of any kind. Worshiping a false god, such as in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhism. It can be the false worship of the true god. Worshiping things created to depict God, statues and paintings and images. Means failing to put God first. Means trusting instead in our own wealth or cherishing possessions above God. Could mean loving someone more than we love God. And then there's sorcery, witchcraft, fortune telling, astrology, superstitions, ascribing things to luck. And then the third group deals with 
interpersonal sins, enmities. Boy, that's bitterness and vindictiveness. It's refusing to forgive someone. Or strife, causing tension and difficulties. Harsh words, slander, gossip. There's jealousy, discontentment, resentment, the me first attitude. Then he says fits of anger. This is the expression of enmity or discontent. It's impatience. It's, it's coming out. It's being displayed. And then there's rivalries. Contention. Pugnaciousness falls under this category. Dissensions and factions. Boy, this is divisive behavior. It's undermining authority. And this rips right through a church. There's envy. This is extreme jealousy and malice to someone because they've got something you don't have. They're being honored in a way you're not being honored. They've won something. They've achieved something. Then there's the sins of appetite. Drunkenness. Well, these sins of appetite include things like alcoholism, drug addiction, gluttony. Even a dependence on tobacco or caffeine. And then finally, carousing. The pursuit of sinful pleasures. Joining with others who seek such things. Sometimes we call it the party scene. Going out and getting drunk and whooping it up. But to top it all off, Paul adds, things like these. See, this isn't an exhaustive list. If you don't find your particular sin listed here, it doesn't mean that it's not a desire of the flesh. He says things like these. And then Paul writes in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. (coughs) Here it is a sense of practicing sin. It denotes a heart hardened against God. Not someone who wrestles with sin or falls into it. We all wrestle with sin. See, it's indeed possible for a Christian to engage in such sins as these. But not for long. And certainly not without distress. When you practice something, you repeatedly engage in it. And it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a habit. It can even define you. You seek out opportunities to engage in, to practice this behavior on a regular basis. It's not just coming to you, you're seeking it. The person who practices sin with no sense of remorse or or repentance is in danger of eternal punishment. See, a person who claims to be saved but practices sin to this level with absolutely no remorse, with no tug of guilt, with no thought of turning, is someone who should question whether or not he's really saved. A Christian can't sin long and hard without feeling it. And then we contrast these with the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now like the desires of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit can be lumped into categories as well. They can be grouped. The first group are what are called the foundational graces. It's from these that the others are formed. The first is love. Love is the most important and is the one upon which all others stem. Paul noted this in verse 14, recall, when asked, uh, and then when asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is an act of the will. It's an affection and a commitment toward another, seeking the other's well-being. And then there's joy. 
Love produces joy. It takes the form of delight, of security, of comfort. All in the Lord. And then there's peace. When we're reconciled to God, we have peace. We have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. And our consciences are clear before him when we have peace. It's when we harbor sin and we try to hold that back and we engage in our sinful desires that as Christians we should feel no peace. And not only that, but we have peace with other people. There are no more rivalries, no more dissensions. See, if your relationship is good here, your relationship gets good here. But without the peace with God, you can't have peace with others because you're constantly at war. And then comes the second group, the social graces. Patience, characterized by long-suffering. Just as God has suffered long with each of us, we avoid being easily provoked by the actions of others. There's kindness, an attitude of seeking and providing for the well-being of another person. And goodness, the performing of righteous acts. Not to earn credit for ourselves, but for the genuine well-being of the other person. And then come the discipline graces. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is loyalty. First and foremost, it's a loyalty. But it's also doing what you say you will do. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. There's gentleness or, or meekness. Humility. Treating others is more important than yourself. Self-control, marked by submission to the will of God. Keeping in check one's emotions and appetites. Notice that these are the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. It's singular, not plural. And notice that it is the Spirit who produces this fruit in the life of the believer. Now contrast that with the works of the flesh that are produced by the believer. The Spirit produces fruit in the believer. The Spirit produces. But it's the flesh that produces the sin. Paul tells us that against such things there is no law. Laws have penalties. They're on the books and they either prescribe or they proscribe behavior. And they come with a penalty for not following the law. Well, these don't compete with the law and indeed they fulfill the law. So the fruit of the Spirit produced in the believer is evidence of the fulfillment of the law. But this is not the work of the person toward his own self-sanctification. And this is true freedom of living in the Spirit where the Spirit produces its fruit. And then we look at the summation of the chapter, verses 24 and 20 through 26. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What does it mean to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires? See, this was the original question that I set out when I first saw this verse in this, in this book I was reading. I said, wow, what is... What does this all mean? Well, in short, it means to put to death the sin that lingers within each of us. Crucifying sin is a very apt illustration. Crucifixion is a slow, painful death. The victim suffers from imaginable pain. The position in which he is nailed brings about slow asphyxiation. See, he can inhale, but he can't exhale. In order to do so, he has to push himself up against the footrests which his feet are nailed. This causes pain in his arms, his back, his joints, his feet. He can only hold himself up for so long because the pain is so intense he has to let himself back down. Sometimes it takes a long time for the victim to die up and down and with each painful breath. This is why the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs, to hasten his death, but we know he was already dead and his legs didn't need to be broken. Sometimes sin takes a long time to die. But we must never give up. So we must be about killing sin. When confronted with sinful desires, we need to take them to the cross. For me, it helps to imagine that they're nailed up there. 
Each sin, each sinful desire, each passion, it's nailed right up there on that cross. Sometimes they hang there for a while. And the temptation is to take those down. But I know I must let them die the death they deserve, no matter how long and no matter how painful. See, when tempted by sin, it's easy to give in. It's really easy. It's the resistance that's difficult. Giving in brings relief from temptation. It feels so good to indulge the pressure's not on. It feels good to experience the passions that are raging inside if I'm going to get even with that person. Or I'm going to eat more than I should or drink something. Look at things I shouldn't look at. Buy things I can't afford. But we can't let those desires and passions down off that cross. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. Picture a minefield that you've just entered. You've just stepped into a minefield. And if you turn around and go back immediately, you're safe. You're, you're out of that minefield. But with each step you take into the minefield, you go deeper. And the escape is further behind you. The safe passage is further away. See, it starts with just a thought or just a look. And then a desire and then an action, each step deeper into that minefield and further away from the escape. But we are provided the means to crucify this sin. The first is the Holy Spirit. If we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. Paul says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus, having been baptized and was filled with the Holy Spirit, and when he faced temptation by Satan, he didn't resist temptation based on his deity. He faced temptation as a man, a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. By following the Holy Spirit, we can crucify sin. The second means is the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When facing temptation in the wilderness, Jesus quoted scripture. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the things that are spiritual are spiritually discerned. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us illumination and the understanding of scripture. John 14.17 calls him the spirit of truth and that he dwells with you and he will be in you. It is the Holy Spirit that teaches us and brings to remembrance all the things Jesus said. The third is prayer. Even here, the Holy Spirit is active on our behalf. Romans 8.26 says that, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes, excuse me, intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Jesus prayed constantly. The power of prayer cannot be overstated. We're told that we're to pray without ceasing. And when Jesus taught on prayer, he included a petition for protection and deliverance. He said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have the power to kill sin if we walk with the Holy Spirit. Instead of sin, be condemned, repeat, walk, read, pray, repeat. Walk, read, pray, repeat. Let me conclude by asking you to listen again to the words of Romans 8, this time 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If today you're trying to kill sin by adhering to the law, you are sadly, sadly missing the mark. You're in the flesh and you do not have the Spirit of God. But if you've placed your faith not in the law, but in the saving power of Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Romans 8 and 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you today to do so. Stop trying to defeat sin on your own works. Christian, today, if you struggle with sin, rely on the power of the Spirit. Jesus has already conquered sin and death. And by walking with the Spirit, you can crucify the passions and desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all struggle with sin. Father, we know that until we reach your presence, until we are glorified, we will always have this struggle. But Lord, you have provided an escape for us. Father, I pray for each and every one here that as we enter these minefields, that we quickly turn. We rely on the escape you've given us. That we depend not on our own strength. We depend not on our own works. But we depend on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. That is given to us upon faith in Christ. And faith alone. Through grace. Father, I pray that each of us is compelled to read your word. Father, to strengthen us for the time of temptation. To give us understanding into obedience. Father, I pray that we all continue in, and are in constant prayer, that we continually pray, Father. And that we not neglect the prayer for deliverance, that we not de neglect a, a prayer for protection. Father, help each of us to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>